Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Thank you, Pastor Chad, for leading us, and Brittany and Heather and and Amy, Courtney on the drums. Well, I really appreciate our our worship team as they lead us in singing and praising the Lord. And I want to invite you now to worship with me in God's Word. And so if you would, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up in chapter 13 where we left off. And, you know, I've wondered what uh, a good screenwriter, uh, movie producer like Steven Spielberg could do with something as dramatic as the events of the book of Acts. You know, just follow the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys or see the activities of the Spirit working in those early Christians and, and the powerful uh, miracles and, and some of the supernatural things that God is doing. Hey, folks, there's nothing boring about God's Word. And there's nothing boring about God's people. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes God's people make God, the, the Christian life look boring. But truthfully, if we do it by the Word and live according to the Word, it's an exciting life. And it's a dynamic life. And that's exactly the way God intended it to be. Now, as you look in chapter 13, we'll be picking up in verse 13. We left off there uh, in chapter 13 is... Uh, as Barnabas and Saul, his name now changed over to his Roman version, uh, which would be Paul. So from this point forth, you'll, you'll refer to him not as Saul of Tarsus, but as Paul the Apostle. And so we're watching Barnabas and Saul. They've, they've embarked upon their first missionary journey, having been commissioned by the church at Antioch of Syria. And that's important because the, today in our text, we'll be looking at yet another Antioch. And so we, uh, they, they've embarked upon this first missionary journey. They've taken along with them a young man who actually turns out to be, according to the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4.10, John Mark is Barnabas' Barnabas's cousin. And so he's their traveling assistant, if you will. He's not commissioned by the church as a missionary. He's simply assisting them on the journey. And so the first leg of their missionary journey was in Barnabas's home territory, which was the island of Cyprus, there in the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, we saw as a result of their ministering there that they um, were able to to lead a very significant Roman governor, if you will, uh, to to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was a that would have a great impact upon that society. And now, as they move on. Now they're going to be embarking upon another leg of the journey, and they'll be moving into Paul's home territory as they set sail. So if you look at verse 13, it's important just to kind of slow down a second and look at that, because Luke, the gospel writer, is is somewhat terse, abbreviated. Uh, actually, that one verse contains a lot. And, and it's not seen unless you go back and look at the, the, the commentaries and things like that. But, but beginning there, and by the way, as we walk through this sermon today, as God leads us through this sermon today, we're going to be looking at three key areas, three key points. The setting, and then the sermon, which by the way, will be Paul's first published sermon uh, in the scriptures that we have. So the setting, the sermon... And then the separation. And so you'll see that unfold as we move forward. But in verse 13 of chapter 13 of Acts, it tells us now when Paul and his party uh, set sail from Paphos and they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John, that would be John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, as I said, just slow down a second there because appreciate the fact that a lot has happened. From the time that they left the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and Luke and those that are accompanying them on this journey have traveled a good journey. In, in verse 13, there's 200 miles of sailing, not, not on a cruise ship, not even on a power boat, not even, uh, you know, with uh, a fancy uh, motor-powered boat that we would have today, but, but primarily by sail. Or rowing, a very rudimentary type of, uh, of, of sea travel. 200 miles. So that'd be like traveling down to what? Myrtle Beach or something like that? In that distance? Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not the greatest out on the water. And, and I, you know, I can just imagine, you know, a, a journey that long in a sailboat with rowing and going on. You know, that's a long journey. But Luke just says they went from here to, to Perga, you know, uh, in, in Pamphylia, as if, well, there they go. But, but you'll also notice something that is, I think, noteworthy 
Luke does make comment that John Mark leaves them. Now, back in, in, in chapter 12, we saw in verse 12 that the, the church had gathered in the house of John Mark's mother. And she obviously was a woman of, of, of means because it was a large enough house that all the Christians could pack in there. She had servants and that type of thing. So, you know, different commentators have speculated. You know, why did John Mark all of a sudden just pick up and leave? And this would become a matter of contention between Paul and Barnabas in just a few chapters. You'll see this revisited. But, but why did he leave? Some said, well, he probably got seasick. He was tired of traveling on the Mediterranean. He didn't realize that this missionary journey was going to be so grueling. And we'll find out just how grueling in just a moment. Maybe he, he became disillusioned with this idea of being a missionary. He thought it was going to be more exciting. Or, well, it was exciting. Maybe more glamorous. Or maybe he, he missed the, the easy life back in Jerusalem. Missed his friends. Maybe he became homesick. John Mark was quite young. So, you know, or some have speculated that possibly John Mark didn't agree with Paul's theology of, of, of including the Gentiles into the church, uh, not making them abide by the law. Uh, that's one possibility. And then some have speculated that, you know, being Barnabas' cousin, that possibly John Mark was a little resentful of the fact that all of a sudden now, this Saul of Tarsus, Paul, is beginning to emerge as a leader and, and Barnabas is kind of descending in importance and that type of thing. Oh, we don't know for sure. But the fact is, he did pick up and just leave them abruptly. And some would say he deserted them. Uh, Paul probably looked at it that way, as we'll discover later. But I want you to see, as we talk about this setting, as they have as they've journeyed this long journey across the Mediterranean Sea, and they've landed there at Perga, and they're in, in, in the region of Galatia, the province of Galatia, so the Roman territory. This is more Paul's stomping grounds, if you will. And so, when they, it says in verse 14, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now again, again, Luke is a little bit terse, doesn't quite give us all the details. It makes it look like they just picked up their suitcases and walked from Perga right up to Antioch. But, but understand, if you look at the topography of the land that they're traversing at, on this journey from Perga to Antioch, Pisidia, and, and I remember I told you, there's a distinction. This is not the Antioch from which they were commissioned. That was Antioch in Syria. This is uh, an Antioch. There were about six cities named Antioch. So it depended upon the region that you're in. They were on their way to Antioch of Pisidia. And to go from the seaport of Perga to the city of Antioch in Pisidia was quite a journey. Commentators tell us that they had to traverse mountain ranges, the, the Taurus Mountains, that, that were as high as 3,600 feet above sea level. In fact, the city of, of Antioch was at like 3,000 feet uh, uh, above sea level. So, so they had to traverse these very rugged and steep mountain ranges that were notoriously infested with bandits that, that wreaked havoc for great soldiers like Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus, and they were still embedded in the mountains, so they had the dangers of, of traversing the mountains, climbing the mountains, getting over them, uh, or up to the top of them. They had to worry about bandits coming out and, 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 of course, killing them and robbing them and that type of thing. At that time of the year, the rivers that they, there were a couple rivers that they had to cross were usually swollen and, and so flooded, and so they had to cross rivers. So, but, but Luke simply says that they parted from Perga and they came to Antioch. I'm sure that when Paul looked at that, he said, what? <laughs> hey, brother, don't you remember how I almost fell off the cliff? Don't you remember that mountain goat got after me? Don't you remember those robbers? that were, I mean, what about when we were trying to wade across that Russian river and almost lost everything? I mean, where, where's all of that? Luke says the Holy Spirit told me to write it. <laughs> I'm just speculating. But here they are. And, and, and why, you know, uh, as we look at the missionary's perilous journey... Paul, I believe, reflects upon that in in his writings. For instance, if you'll hold your place there, you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about all the things he suffered in following Christ in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 26. Let me just share this. Just Now, this could be Paul summarizing this perilous journey 
uh, from Perga to Antioch, Pisidia, in, a, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, he says, In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Paul said, look, I was among danger all the time. God has called all of us. Christ has called all of us to follow Him. And folks, don't be disillusioned to think that being a Christian and following Christ is some plush, cushiony, popular, favorable calling. God calls, His call on our lives is not based on our convenience and our comfort. Do you understand that? If you settled in as a Christian and you're very comfortable and everything is working at your convenience. I would challenge you to ask yourself before God, am I truly following the Lord? Because I promise you, now He may not take you up a 3,600 feet mountain range or across swollen rivers or in the midst of bandits, but I assure you where Christ will lead you if you're faithful, if we're faithful to follow Him and to share His Word and to witness for Him, it's not going to be always convenient. And it's not always going to be comfortable. I'll never forget, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, a group of us went over to the Greensboro Coliseum. The International Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention was staging a rare commissioning of new missionaries in North Carolina. It rarely happens. And so that night, I was determined. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to see that. Missionaries being commissioned to go to, the, to, to all over the world, the remotest parts of the earth. And I remember the Coliseum was packed. There were Baptists from all over, from Murphy to Manio. They, they had the, the, the choir, the orchestra. I mean, it was a beautiful occasion. And, and I'll never forget as they brought those young couples up on the stage. And they one at a time would share God's call upon their life into international missions. I'll never forget as long as I live. Seeing this one young couple, probably in their early 20s, stand up on that stage and look out across that sea of fellow Baptists and describe how God had called them to Western Africa along with their little toddler to, to live amongst a nomadic tribe of Western Africans who were herdsmen. Which means if you're a nomad and you're a herdsman, you don't settle down. And this young couple heard the call of God upon their hearts to go and to live amongst this predominantly Muslim tribe of herdsmen knowing that they would live in a tent for the duration of their time on the mission field, breaking tent and moving with that group of, that tribe of herdsmen as they followed their, their, as they led their herds to grazing lands all across Western Africa through deserts and all kinds of harsh Environmental conditions. And I remember that young lady standing up there and says, Yes, we know we're going into danger. We know that there are great risk. And she kind of chuckled and says, Yes, I realize that I'll be cooking our meals over wood fire, open fires. But she says, God has called us. And we trust the Lord. I, I, I get chills going up and down my spine thinking, what courage! What faith! What commitment! And they're just one couple among many. Many of the 5,000 international missionaries that we have who are going into uncomfortable, inconvenient areas to carry the good news of the gospel to people who desperately need it. Not just in foreign countries. I think about Brother Andrew Mann. He's a North American missionary 
And, and God has called him down to the, the, the lower section of Manhattan, New York City, in the Bronx, where he has a storefront ministry in the midst of hookers and, and, and street gangs and, and drug dealers. And, and that's home. And there he's sharing the gospel. Folks, how uncomfortable have you been lately? How inconvenient has it been for you to faithfully go where the Lord has led you to go? Or maybe have you, like so many other Christians, have rationalized, well, you know, maybe the Lord really didn't intend for me to go over to that cranky neighbor of mine. Oh, or maybe the Lord really didn't mean for me to have to give up one of my Saturdays to go and, and to participate in missions work. No, maybe God didn't really intend that. Well, what if He does? Well, as we look at the missionaries' perilous journey, we need to move on because we soon see as they got to Antioch at Pisidia, we see the missionaries' promise and destination, and it focuses on the synagogue. Because in verse 14 it says, When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now let me just say something here too. Because the synagogue, during the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews all over the Roman Empire... Jewish communities that, that where there were concentrations of Jews in all these different cities and regions uh, across the Roman Empire, they didn't have access to the temple of Jerusalem anymore, so their worship center was the synagogue. But the synagogue in a, in a Jewish community was more than just the worship center because it was actually the education center for the Jewish community. It was the social, the political, uh, and judicial so everything pertaining to, to life as a Jew happened around the synagogue. So the natural place, if you wanted to preach in foreign territory the gospel, Paul would go to the synagogue. And this would be a pattern for the Apostle Paul. Because there the Jews were gathered. The Jews had the Old Testament. The Old Testament was a foundation upon which the gospel message was built. So it stands the reason he would start in the synagogue. And that's exactly what Paul did there, he and Barnabas, they went into the synagogue and they, they were there and, and it tells us, and they sat down. Now, as we look further in verse 15, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So, I'll just tell you this. That was like saying, sick him to a hound dog to the Apostle Paul. Uh, when they simply came over to him and said, Brother, we understand that you are a distinguished rabbi from the area of Jerusalem, which got their attention because if you, the further away you were from Jerusalem, the more you wanted to hear from anybody who was a qualified rabbi to teach the law of the prophets from Jerusalem. They wanted to hear because that was the, the hub of Judaism. So when they heard that Paul had sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, one of the prominent rabbis of that day. Oh, they said, oh, bring him on, bring him on. So that basically they're saying, brother, if there's anything that, that you would like to share, we would like to hear from you. And Paul's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is great. You know, I think it's interesting that Paul, like I said, established this pattern of beginning in the synagogue with the Jews. But you know, that's consistent with what Jesus told his disciples in his last words to his disciples before his ascension to heaven, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Who was Jesus telling them to start with? The Jews. Start with the Jews. And work your way out to the Gentiles. That's exactly what Paul was doing. You find that reflected in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 when Paul says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the who? The Jews. And then the Gentiles, the Greeks. So you see, Paul had a consistent pattern in which he was going. But now, they've set him up. God has set him up. So we move from the setting now to the sermon. Paul stands up in verse 16. And motioning with his hands... That means he's a good preacher. Don't ever follow a man who preaches with his hands in his pocket. Something's wrong. Now, I laugh because I'm very expressive with my hands. Jan told me when I started out early in my years at, at uh, Cornerstone, she says, you know, honey, 
If somebody tied your hands behind your back and you couldn't talk about Andy Griffith, you couldn't preach. <laughs> well, I've tried to work on the Andy Griffith thing, but, uh, you know, uh, I, the hands, I just can't help it. But, but now it gives me great comfort because the, the first thing Paul does when he gets up is get motioning with his hand. He wants to get their attention. Drawing their attention to, because he's got something important to say and it begins with the Jews. He said, men of Israel. But not just the Jews and you who fear God, in other words, proselytes, those who were Gentiles who became uh, Jews. So, but the, the, now we look at the, the message that Paul, and, and I want you to understand something. Well, this is Paul's first public recorded message, his gospel message. And I want you to understand, look at the, I want you to see this. How God, how God centered Paul's message is. How biblical Paul's message is. Paul doesn't get up and rant on some kind of a, a dissertation that is purely subjective and offering his opinion. No, no, look at what he's doing here in this message. It all points to God. It's all about God. I like when Brother Richard Snowball was teaching our combined Christian growth group class the other Sunday. And Richard, you did a great job of helping us to remember that the story of David and Goliath, you know, wasn't about David. Though he was certainly a key part of it, it wasn't really about Goliath, though he was a big part of it, literally. It was about God. It was about Jehovah God, El Sabaoth, the God of Israel's army. It was all about, and that's what Paul is saying. He says, boy, do I have a message for you. And it's all about God. It's all about the Word. And so, beginning in verse 17, Paul begins in this wonderful message. He first of all talks about God's the gospel is about God's providence as it's being unfolded. In verse 17, he says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. In other words, you remember, it was God that chose Abraham. Out of all the men walking on the face of the earth, He chose a man by the name of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham had faith. Such faith that it made him a friend of God. He wasn't a perfect man. But nonetheless, Paul says... That God, the God of these people, He chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm He brought them out of it. Now let me just say something here. Paul is going to help us to understand that as God's providence is unfolding with the people of Israel. Remember, God has a plan. Things don't ever happen randomly, coincidentally, with the God of the universe. He's an all-knowing God. He knows the past, the present, the future. So therefore, God has always had a plan. He had a plan the day He called Abraham because He told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And Abraham is barren. He and his wife are, you know, have no children at that time. God says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And Abraham's looking around. Whoa. And, you know, and he says, not only that, he says, I'm going to bless you. And he says, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And through you, Abraham, here's the promise. And through you, Abraham, all, all the families of the earth. That's every racial group every ethnic language group of the world. He says every family will be blessed through you. Now that's a promise that God made to Abraham. And ladies and gentlemen, that promise is still intact today. And it will be fulfilled at the coming of Christ when Jesus establishes His reign on the earth over Israel and all the world. But but we, we need to move on because God has given this ancient promise in Genesis chapter 12. But we see God's His, His dealings with the Jewish people and, and, and God's dealings with the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and He takes us back to Egypt where they were in bondage to the Pharaoh and, and, and they were slaves. And, and He takes us back there. He says... Um, in, in verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm. Now, I want you to notice how many times he uses the proper pronoun, the, the, the third person pronoun, he. And in my Bible, it's capitalized. And every time he says he, you can just insert God. And I want you to see, because he's not talking about individual people. He's talking about what God is doing through one nation, the Jews. And so he says, he brought them out 
of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he, God, put up with their ways in the wilderness, which we know were stubborn and rebellious. And in verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, God, distributed their land to them by allotment. So God has brought them out of uh, uh, Egypt in bondage. He's brought them in through the wilderness. He's, he's dispossessed these other nations. He's given them the land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 20. After that, he gave them judges, as we're seeing in our Christian growth group, uh, and, 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 uh, also in the, uh, overview of judges by Pastor Tim and Pastor Chad and others who are preaching through that. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And after they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And, verse 22, and when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, A man after my own heart. Why? Because look what it says. Who will do all my will. Now, I want you to observe something as we move further in Paul's sermon. He's been kind of skipping along in the history of the nation of Israel. I mean, he's knocking off centuries just like that. But when he gets to David, when he gets to King David, it slows down. Intentionally, Paul is wanting to rivet their attention upon the servant of God, David, and the importance of David as a type of the Messiah to come. Many of the qualities that God was looking for ultimately in the Messiah, he, he saw in David. And you know, Jesus was bent on doing the will of God the Father. He said, it's my food, it's my bread, I, I, it's what I thrive on, is to do the will of my Father. David, though he was not perfect and made mistakes, certainly at his heart wanted to do God's will. And so, in verse 23, From this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a Savior, Jesus. So you see the connection now. Verse 24, Paul goes on. After John, talking about John the Baptist, had preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, speaking of the Messiah, John made it very clear. I'm not the Messiah. Because some were asking him if he was. And John says, no, I'm not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. You see, Paul was revisiting John the Baptist's message and ministry because there were people in Antioch of Pisidia who had probably heard John the Baptist, or at least heard of John the Baptist. And he was renowned in their minds. They were thinking, uh, in their thinking, he had a, a key role to play in the announcement of the Messiah. So Paul is revisiting the ministry of John the Baptist to help them to see that God sent a wonderful, dynamic, charismatic, powerful preacher, prophet by the name of John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Messiah. Paul goes on in his message in verse 26. He says, Men and brethren, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To you the word of this salvation has been sent. Now, Paul is basically bringing them up to date. He says, God has prophesied this Messiah coming. He has set the stage. He has providentially demonstrated down through history that the nation of Israel, even though they were designated as the people of God, they have proven that they are unable to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, which means they need a Messiah. A Messiah which means they cannot achieve the righteousness that God would expect of them. And it all points to the deep-seated need of a Messiah. And Paul says in verse 26, men, brethren, everybody, listen, this message is for you. God has sent the Messiah. And he's going to go on to describe about Jesus. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning Him. So now He's drawn their attention to Jesus. 
And he's helping them to understand that this Messiah who was prophesied was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. First of all, through the rejection of the very ones that should have been receptive to him. Paul says it was the leaders of Jerusalem who, who not only rejected the Messiah, but they rejected the very voices of the prophets who that they were reading every every Sabbath. The prophets who were pro- prophesying this Messiah, they were ignoring the teachings of the very scriptures that were pointing to the Messiah. And so he's filling them in. Some of them maybe hadn't heard. Whatever happened to that Jesus? What really caused such a stir? Why was there such an uproar about his life? And he's saying, he's saying plainly to them that this Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He came to His people. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem rejected Him. But in rejecting Him, they fulfilled the very prophecies that they didn't even know. Because the prophets had foretold that He would be forsaken. And so now verse 29. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. Which brings us to the resurrection. And this is what Paul is preaching about. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But look at verse 30. But but God raised Him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are His witnesses to the people. And we declare to you, glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. And Paul is saying, listen... The Messiah has come. We have heard with our own ears eyewitnesses who saw that God not only allowed His Son to be slain and then buried, but He was raised on the third day. One of the commentators said that a dead Messiah is a useless Messiah. The power of the Gospel hinged On the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on that third day. And that's what Paul is wanting them to see in this message. Let me take you further because he goes back to David. And he goes back to prophecies that would help them to understand that. Verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled This for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm. And he's talking about Psalm 2-7, where the psalmist says, You are my Son, speaking of the incarnation of Christ. And he says, Today I have begotten you. In other words, the day of your resurrection, the Father is saying to the Son, You are the blessed Messiah. You have fulfilled the requirements of paying for the the, the penalty of the sins of mankind. Therefore, I have begotten you. He goes on in verse 34. He says, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to, to return to corruption. He has spoken this. Thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Speaking of the Messiah. He said, this Messiah will fulfill the promises of God. Do you remember the promise that God made? To David through the prophet Samuel when David was wanting to build the temple. God told David, you're not going to build the temple, but your son will build the temple. But he said, David, I'm going to bless you. And the way I'm going to bless you is that one day, one of your very own descendants will sit on the throne of Israel and will reign not just for a few years, but he will reign forever. And David couldn't get over that. I don't think he ever got over that wonderful blessing. How is it that God would look upon me, David was reflecting, and be so merciful, knowing the things that he had done? How is it that God would be so merciful to award my family with the privilege of having the Messiah in the lineage? And God says, this is what I've done. I have fulfilled those sure mercies of David in this Messiah. Look at verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is Psalm 1610. David is writing. And some people have speculated. Well, David is talking about himself. He's the Messiah. But Paul goes quickly 
to point out something very significant. Verse 36. He said, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. In other words, he died. He was buried with his fathers. That's typical. And he saw corruption. You can go to Jerusalem, find the the, the, the tomb of David. And as great and prominent as David is and was and probably always will be in the, in the minds and hearts of the average Jew, he's the greatest king the Jews ever had. But if you were to exhume what, what were his remains, you would find ashes. Because he saw corruption, which means he could not be the Messiah. David couldn't. But look at verse 37. Paul proceeds, But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Speaking of Jesus. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, talking of Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And look at verse 39. This is important. This will help you to understand why the Gentiles, and and, and folks, as far as I know, all of us are Gentiles, descendants of Gentiles, and so we should be celebrating too. Because salvation didn't come just to the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, but, but to everyone, look what he says in verse 39. This Jesus that everyone can put their faith in. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said the law that the, that the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are still adhering to and practicing so religiously and so legalistically. He says the law won't save you. The law can't save you. The law only condemns you in your sin. But this Jesus, who is the descendant of David, who fulfills the mercies of God towards David and the promises of God towards David, this Jesus, who is the Christ, is the Messiah because He was buried and He rose again. He saw the corruption. He has fulfilled the prophetic word of the Scriptures and He has brought to all who believe salvation. But you know, it's interesting in verse 40 and 41, Paul quickly gives a warning that's very appropriate for this audience, this congregation. Because Paul knows the thinking of many Jews. Many of them reject the gospel. But look what he says. He's warning them right up front. Verse 40, Beware, beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And here's the warning. Taken out of Habakkuk chapter five, one verse uh, five, uh, chapter one verse five, Habakkuk one five. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I will work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to de- de- declare it to you. Paul says, "Be careful. Be very careful. Don't let this prophecy be fulfilled in you." Because even the prophet Habakkuk understood that there would be those who would see the marvel of something as glorious as the bodily resurrection of the Son of God and still turn their hearts against Him. And he says, and then they will miss, they will miss salvation. Paul is giving them a little forewarning to say, don't you miss this. Don't you be the one that Habakkuk was prophesying about. That's the sermon. The Messiah, He is this Christ, Jesus, that God sent into the world, His only begotten Son, to take upon Himself on a rugged cross the penalties of all of humanity who would believe upon Him. Now we look at the separation. And folks, let me tell you something. Christianity is not a religion of universalism. Christianity is not some heartwarming faith tradition meant to draw all the people of the world together in one glorious get along and no matter what you believe doesn't matter which background you come from or what your religious preferences are oh we just all coming together and saying come by y'all and under the you know no 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 Christianity done right biblical Christianity and biblical Christian living will not make you the most popular person in town. You won't be the person that people will flock to and speak so highly of. Not from the secular world, I can promise you that. If you stand on the Word of God and you practice the Word of God in your personal life, I can assure you that there will be division. Jesus 
made it clear to his disciples, if you are a friend of the world, you'll be an enemy of God. Vice versa. You choose to be a friend of God, and you will make yourself an enemy of this world. Talking about the sinful world. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. And I believe Paul was very aware of this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not think that, I'm, that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus made it clear, gentlemen, if you're going to be my followers, you need to understand something. I didn't come to bring peace. And the word that I'm giving you, the word of God, is very divisive against this secular sinful world. And it will cause people to turn against you and it will cause you to lose favor in the social arena. And Jesus says, if they hated you, they'll hate me. If they hated me, they'll hate you. And God, the gospel proved to be divisive for Paul as it was for Christ, as it was for Peter, and as it will be for you and me. Two groups emerge as we finish out. Two groups. First, those who gladly receive the gospel by faith. As we look here, beginning in chapter 42, and when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Folks, they were hungry. Drop down in verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Folks, the Gentiles who had reasoned to themselves that there was no hope for them because they weren't descendants of Abraham. Suddenly they find out through the preaching of the gospel that this salvation is for them. It is for everyone who believes. Listen, it's like having a terminal illness and the doctor writing you off and somebody walks in with the cure. They were rejoicing. They were celebrating. They were hungry. They were begging Paul and Barnabas, listen, please come back next Sunday. Well, Sabbath. Teach us more. We never heard this before. Uh, this is so great. This is so wonderful. Please come back and teach us more. I think it's interesting. As the chapter ends in verse 52, it says, And the disciples, who were the disciples? They were Gentiles primarily. Who, who were gobbling up the gospel message like it was biscuits for a dog. They were just, oh, they couldn't get enough. And the Bible tells us that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Does that remind you of another event we read earlier in the book of Acts? Does it, is it reminiscent of what happened at, 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 at Jerusalem on Pentecost? The word was preached. The Spirit came down. People got saved. And there was joy in the house. That's the group of people who were gladly receiving the gospel by faith. Sadly to say, not everybody did. And this would be the pattern of Paul's ministry. And this is the pattern of your ministry and my ministry. As you go out and you faithfully stand on the truth of God's Word and you share from your heart your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and what He means to you and you're excited about it, you will have some people who are dying to hear that. That will be just the thing they need to hear and they will grasp it and they'll gobble it down by faith. They'll thank you. They'll praise the Lord. They'll be saved and there'll be joy. But then there will be people who will hear the same thing. And they'll be as mad at you as if you were to slap their mother with a cold, dead fish. I don't suggest you do that. It's just something that came to my mind. They'll get upset. Upset. How do we know that? Because they were upset 
That day at Antioch, Pisidia, when we look at the group who sinfully refused God's offer of grace, the Jews there, for the most part, rebuffed Paul's message. Verse 44, And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. Who got them there? I'll tell you who got them there. Those Gentiles who got them saved. And, and some of the Jews that got, those who were saved were so excited about this wonderful life-given message. They were telling everybody, you've got to come to the synagogue. Doesn't matter if you're a member or not. The place was packed out. Now you would think the church members would be celebrating. Man, look at this crowd. We've not had anything like this since, well, we never had anything like this. Look at the people just hanging out the windows. They're lined up in the streets. There's no room. All this. You'd think they would just be celebrating. But, look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with, there it goes, here's Satan working. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? He's not on vacation. He's not taking a sabbatical and going off somewhere. He still works. And he still gets into churches today. When God does a great work in a person's life or in a group in the church and, and the Spirit is moving and, and you can just see good things going on, then all of a sudden the devil will get into somebody and say, oh, you don't like that because you're not in the spotlight. You're not getting the attention. You're not getting the praise. Oh, that group over there. They, oh, that person over there. Look, look, God's doing great things. Everybody's just praising Him. Be careful. There's not one of us who's immune to Satan stirring up envy in us just like he did in the Jews that day. And so it says, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you rejected And you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Paul is basically saying, look, you've rejected the very hope that, that God has sent for you. In rejecting the gospel, you've condemned your soul to hell. And we're going to go ahead, he says, and we turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47, for, this, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. All the Jews were incensed. Look at verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout prominent women. Ladies, beware. Especially if you're prominent. You're very susceptible to be stirred up. Cause trouble. Well, look, the men can do it too, alright? So this is not, uh, this is an equal opportunity message. But it just so happened that they started with the women and the chief men of the city. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Threw them out. The very ones that were bringing hope and life and God's mercy and forgiveness, they ran them out of town. And I thought it was interesting. You know, Paul never apologized for telling the whole truth. I like this passage over in Acts chapter 20. Paul, Paul is, is right in there uh, speaking. And he says, uh, let me read it to you in verse 20. He says, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He says, I told it like it was. I didn't hold back. I didn't edit my sermons because of sensitive groups. I didn't edit the sermon or water it down so it would be more palatable to some people. Paul says, I didn't hold back anything that was profitable for you. And then in verse 26 of that same chapter, chapter 20, verse 26, Paul says, listen to what he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned or pulled back to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And I tell you too, my brothers and sisters, don't you dare water down the message. Don't you dare make it more tasteful and acceptable so you won't offend somebody. 
You do the same thing because you know what? One day you will stand before the Lord. Remember when you were little, or if you got children or grandchildren, you know, they'd run into the table hungry because they've been out playing. My mom would say, Show me your hands. She knew on a farm? Good gracious. They're telling what we've been handling, taking up. Show me your hands. Get in the bathroom and wash your hands. What if when you stand before the Lord in your personal judgment and the Lord, you see the nail prints in His hands and He says to you, my child, let me see your hands. Whose blood stain will be on your hands or my hands because we found excuses not to tell them the whole truth of the gospel. We made up reasons why it was inconvenient to go. It was uncomfortable to go. And and one day we'll stand before the Lord and He'll say, show me your hands. And Paul could stand before the people and say, I testify before you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now it cost him. It cost him dearly. But dear friend, Paul preached the whole truth of the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. Because he knew one day he would stand before the very one who hung on a cross with his nail-pierced hands and paid it all. Listen, when the culture is pressuring the church not to preach against materialism and against sexual immorality and against corruption in the government, And as we've witnessed more recently in the city of Houston, when political leaders like this mayor who's an openly practicing lesbian begins to to intimidate preachers in the city, to try to intimidate them from preaching the gospel and preaching against homosexuality. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, now is not a time for Christians to get weak need. And soft, now is the time for us to determine that we're going to do exactly what Paul did and and always did and Christ advocates for us to do and that is to stand on the whole truth of the Word of God, be willing to face the fire and be willing to endure persecution and it's coming because this world in which we live is increasingly becoming pagan and is hostile towards the message of the Gospel and against Jesus Christ and those who choose to stand on their faith in Christ and to proclaim the truth of the Gospel will find themselves being intimidated by the pagan secular world around us. I pray to God Cornerstone will not be named among the list of those churches that caved in and gave in to appease a wicked, secular government. I pray to God, beginning with your pastors, through all of the leaders, to every church member, that when given the opportunity to solidly profess faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and call sin what the Bible calls sin, I pray that every one of us will be like Paul. We'll say, Clean hands. Clean hands.